0: sorry i'm recording on two mics so it divides the audio is this better audio wise keep talking talk 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 it's about the same sorry i'm still i swear i'm gonna get this From the Mundangerous Virtual Studio in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 52 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours.
1: In this episode, we're celebrating a milestone, a whole year of Total Party Thrill. And to help us do that, we have our first guests, and really the only guest we've ever actually wanted to have on the show, the creator of Eberron and the upcoming game Phoenix Dawn Command, Keith Baker.
0: And because Keith has way more interesting things to say than we do, we're going to skip our Morning Glory recap and Character Creation Forge segments, and we'll get back to that regular forum hat next week.
2: So, Keith, welcome to the show. Howdy. Great to be here. Love what you've done with the place.
1: We're super excited to have you here. You get a lot of mentions on the show and on our Twitter accounts, mainly because <clears throat> every time uh, I do a recap of the game that we ran for a few years in Emberon, I always say, oh yeah, and then I found some lore on the Dragonmarks blog and sort of, you know, played around with that. Which, which I spend far too much time on,
2: but <laughs> I, I wish I could spend more, of course. The problem is you poke me with any topic of Eberron religion or something and I won't write three pages about it. <laughs> I can't help myself. It's a disease.
1: You guys have actually met before. Yeah, we met at Gen
0: Con last year.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: You weren't wearing your hat, and I didn't recognize you. That's (laughs) what happens. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) It's it's the whole Clark Kent Superman thing. You don't think those glasses are a very clever disguise until, you know, you see him not wearing them, and you just walk right by him.
0: Yeah, you were holding court in the courtyard, I think, of one of the hotels, and you know, a crowd of people gathered around you as you were just doing a QA and I walked right by the whole group <laughs> thinking, Oh, it's weird that there are people just hanging out here and not putting two and two together because I didn't see the hat. So
2: Well, in fact, this year I, I have always traditionally just hung out in a hotel lobby in Gen Con. Uh, this year is the first year that we're actually having that Q and A in an actual, you know, seminar room. So hopefully this time it'll be easier not to miss it.
0: And now you got to collect tickets too, right?
2: I guess I do. Yeah. I mean, we're not charging anything for it. I think the tickets are just purely to prove to them that people come. And frankly, if people didn't come, we'd just do it in a hotel lobby. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> there you go. But I'm not too worried about that.
0: This Q&A will happen one way or
1: the other. <laughs>
2: that is exactly correct. <laughs> Speaking of which, what do you want to talk about? So
1: our gaming group playtested... Phoenix Dawn Command, Mm -hmm. and we had a great time with it. So let's start off by talking about the game. Can you just give our listeners the elevator pitch for Phoenix Dawn Command?
2: So Phoenix Dawn Command is a card-based role-playing game that we will be releasing at Gen Con. And it is, as I said, card-based. You use cards instead of dice, and they really basically take the place of a character sheet as well. Sort of everything about your character is sort of summed up in your deck of cards, One of the things about that is it gives you a lot more sort of control of your actions. From turn to turn, there's a random factor based on which cards you've drawn. But in the immediate moment, you can look at your hand and sort of know what you're capable of. And where that comes to me is we've all had those moments where, you know, you're facing the big bad guy. And you make your speech about how you're going to avenge your ancestors. And you use your biggest attack and you roll a 1. And you're just like, oh, that's not how that scene was supposed to go. Like, that's not how this would happen in the movie. And in Phoenix, you at least can look at your hand and say, oh, this is not the turn to make that speech. You know, I'm going to save my speech till I know I've got a really good uh, good hand to back it up. But the other thing, so Phoenix is a fantasy role-playing game uh, set in a new world that I'm developing just for that and it is a world that is besieged by a vast array of supernatural threats we don't really understand what is causing these part of the drive of the game is to understand the threat so that we actually have a chance to beat it Uh, the only people who can face this threat are phoenixes which is to say you and phoenixes are people who have died and been reborn imbued with supernatural power And one of the defining things about Phoenix is that death is actually how your character grows stronger. You are able to die and return up to seven times. Each time you die, you come back with more power. It's basically what have you learned from your previous life, but you are also closer to the end of the road. And that basically just changes things dramatically and really allows us to tell stories that just don't work. In most role-playing games where death is, you know, sort of the end of the story. One thing I really like as an example is Gandalf in Lord of the Rings, where they go into Moriah and they fight the orcs, and okay, that's a tough fight, but they handle it. You fight a troll, and that's a really tough fight, but you make it through. You run into the Balrog. That's probably your objective. It's just, what is going on in these mines? Okay, it's a Balrog, but you are just going to die. There is no way you can beat that. And now the question is, can any of you get out alive? And, well, you know, you can if someone's willing to hold it at the bridge and take it down that way. And that sort of moment of, I'm going to bring down this Balrog, even if I have to die in the process, is the kind of story you're generally not going to get. It's a jerk move for a game master to, to say, I'm going to throw a monster at you that's just going to kill you all. But in Phoenix, you can have that moment and say, do we just try and run for our lives or is one of us willing to make a stand here and bring it down. And so that's the two things about it. And that ties to it being a card-based game is it is a game where quite often, you know, failure and death are on the table, Uh, but the stakes are very high. The missions are very important and it can be worth it to lay down your life to get the job done because you're using the cards. You have much more of a sort of resource control of basically you decide when you're investing your best things Uh, The last thing I'll say is you also have a pool of magical energy called sparks, and you can burn sparks to basically push beyond what you can do with your cards, but when you run out of sparks, you die. So again, it comes back to this, it is a game where death is on the table and will often happen, but more often than not, it's because you're choosing the moment and you're sort of pulling off something amazing with your sacrifice.
1: So is Gandalf a Durant? Is is that...
2: Gandalf? I don't think he's a Durant. So basically, the point of the question is that Phoenix has schools, which are essentially like classes in other games, and your school is based on why you died and what you took away from it. So part of it is it's not just you become more powerful when you die, but we're going to actually talk about it and say, what kind of death was that? Because that will determine what kind of powers you gain. So Durants die because they're not tough enough or strong enough, and, uh, you know, they come back stronger. And I don't think of of Gandalf as like a bruiser. He's definitely wise, and he's also sort of magically, I would tend to say he's either devoted or elemental. He's definitely got some elemental lessons, because he does stuff with, you know, fire and such. Devoted definitely fits the wise sort of category, and devoted die for others. And I think it's pretty easy to say that in sacrificing himself to hold the line there, he's dying to save the others, you know, because uh, he's, he's enabling them to get away. Fly, you fools, mm-hmm. is all I'd say. So I would, I would vote for Gandalf as devoted. The other option, of course, is uh, there is the bitter school, and the bitter dies in failure. <laughs> and part of the point is it's always about how you see things. So it is the question of does your character view their death as yes I saved my friends you know in which case that's devoted or do they say that was terrible in which case it's bitter
0: yeah Ishan and I both played bitters at different points so (laughs) (laughs) that one really resonates
2: but uh, yeah a lot of people the bitter bitter is the you know the Wolverine anti-hero barbarian sort of character so they're a lot of fun to play as a person who's made Gloom of course uh, I enjoy the bitter and part of what i'd say about phoenix is in some ways it's the marriage of gloom and eberron because mm-hmm. it is a fantasy role-playing game but it's also a story-driven card game in which you know your character's going to die and that's okay
0: so tell us a little bit about the story mm-hmm. of phoenix then
2: So the story of Phoenix is you have a fantasy world. It is a world in which magic exists, but it is not understood. Magic is powerful and dangerous. So unlike Eberron, where magic is very scientific and incorporated into civilization, in Phoenix, it is a force that has shaped many of the cultures of the world. You can sort of see these people sort of mastered shamanic magic these people made pacts with spirits, and that sort of established the flavor of the cultures that exist, but because it's a very dangerous and mysterious force, it's actually something that has been suppressed and is not uh, common in the world. Essentially, the first phoenixes, the first thousand phoenixes that appeared, unified all the nations of the known world into what's called the empire. And that was great, and they stamped out magic and, you know, made the world a safe place until people essentially said, yeah, but it's kind of creepy having these thousand immortal dudes, you know, ruling us and deciding what we can and can't do. Uh, That led to a civil war, and ultimately the phoenixes stepped down. There was all this carnage, and they sort of said, you're right. What are we doing? We should be protecting the empire, not ruling it. They stepped down, and after that, they stopped coming back. And so until recently, phoenixes have really been just sort of a legend. It's a story. Hundreds of years ago, they say that there were these great immortal heroes. And over the last couple hundred years, things have really been pretty good. It's been peaceful, happy, until three years ago when the Dread began. And the Dread, as I said, is just a whole series of supernatural threats sort of almost anything you can imagine. We have an army of the dead that's risen and is marching north. We have something called the chant, where basically people will start chanting and killing people, and anyone who hears the chant either joins in or gets killed by the people who are chanting, and we don't know exactly how it starts, we don't know how it spreads, but you know we've lost entire cities to it uh you have shape changers you know werewolves ghosts uh mass hysteria ancient spirits you know known as the fallen folk you know sort of all these things going on and essentially you could argue there's a touch of sort of pacific rim of the point being we know it's getting worse we know more of these things are happening we know we've lost more and more cities and territory but we don't know why it's happening we don't know does the chant have anything even to do with the bone army Or is it just sort of all of these things are happening at once? Uh, So like I said, it's a big part of the setting is not simply can you handle whatever immediate fire you're dropped in the middle of, but also can you understand it? Can you figure out why these things are happening? Meanwhile, phoenixes have just started coming back. There's not very many phoenixes in the world. So you're sort of more like a ragtag resistance movement than, you know, the heroes of the empire at this point. And I like to say it's a little like if King Arthur just showed up at the Pentagon and said, I'm here to help. You know, yes, we have (laughs) legends that that he he is going to come back when he's needed, but no one's really expecting it. And if he did, would anyone believe him? Right. And so that is also part of the arc of the game of you're not just fighting the dread, you're also essentially trying to establish to the rest of the world that phoenixes are here and they're here to help. So while it is interesting as a one-shot, it is really in the campaign mode where it shines, both because the story that evolves from your sacrifices and from your deaths and rebirths is very interesting, and also because it is about your successes, your failures. You know, Like I said, failure is an option because you could have a total party kill and well, you're gonna have to come back and deal with that problem. You know, basically, if we drop you in a village where there's a chant outbreak, we can say, you have one hour to stop this. And if you can stop it, great. It doesn't even matter if a bunch of you die doing it. You know, just stop the the spread. If you don't, if you all die, then by the time you come back, we're gonna have lost that whole city. And if that was like a vitally important strategic city, then you're going to have to deal with the consequences of that in the games ahead. And so that's one of the more fun parts to me is it is something where as the the campaign goes on, you really are dealing with the outcomes of your previous adventures.
0: So when you talk about the campaign, Phoenix, it's like a 500 page book now, right? Mm -hmm.
2: 460 technically, but
0: only 460.
2: (laughs) Uh, Given that we were originally planning on 120, and then with the Kickstarter, we added 60 more pages to get to 180. And yeah, well, actually, it's it's 460. But you know, hey, (laughs) light
1: reading,
0: summer reading, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm gonna take it to the beach. So
2: part of that is that 200 pages of that is a seven mission campaign arc.
0: So that was my question. Is that campaign arc? Is that sort of how you've envisioned most players are going to interact with the Phoenix world?
2: Uh, It is, but at the same time, it is totally intended as something that you could just look at and you could pick and choose, or you could use it as inspiration. Uh, You know, Phoenix is certainly a game where you can make your own adventures. And even the arc that is there, part of the point again of the Dread is there are all these different threats. And this campaign arc sort of focuses in on one of them and sort of deals with sort of finding out what that's about and how, why that's happening and what you can do about it. But it's not like the campaign solves the entire mystery of the dread. So uh, it's not like when you're done with that campaign, you're done, you know? So like I said, you could uh, run the whole campaign you could run it but drop in your own missions in between the ones that uh, that we've provided, or you could just use it as inspiration and completely create your own missions. It is the case that with the basic Phoenix, it's a box set. With the box set, you have everything you need for the Game Master, four players, and again, it comes with seven adventures ready to go. So it's a big, heavy, five-pound box, but it's got a lot of stuff to work with.
0: And I saw today, it's shipping soon, right?
2: It's shipping soon. It is in the US. It has it has landed from its long sea voyage, and now it's just going through the whole process of fulfillment. So fingers crossed, we can't know for certain, but it is certainly our hope that backers will have it before Gen Con. Awesome. For everyone else, we will be selling it at Gen Con, and once it is sort of available and, and all dealt with... We will also be selling it at our website on togetherstudios.com, and that's T-W-O-2, together.
1: So I have to applaud you for putting together this game, because for me personally, I was a bit skeptical when Mm -hmm. I first started looking at it. Mm -hmm. I'm not huge into games that utilize cards instead of dice. I am not always really down with the horror genre, which, you know, has a heavy influence on, mm-hmm. on Phoenix. Absolutely. But when I started playing, I loved that you could really dive headlong into the game and not worry about, you know, are we going to make it out of this? Because kind of part of the fun was not making it out of it.
2: It's really interesting because that's one of the hardest things sometimes to get across to people who are used to playing a lot of D&D or Pathfinder is there are points in particular when you're attacked when you may want to just say, I'll take that attack even though I could block it because I'd rather save up my energy to do something really awesome on my turn because it's getting that point of, yeah, me dying is not the worst thing that can happen here. It's all about if you can die well. And it's exactly like you're saying, there's so many just awesome moments we've had of just people doing things. Like, it is a game where you could say, I am going to leak down the giant's mouth so I can cut him apart from the inside sort of thing, even though I'm going to die. Which you just would never do in another setting. Or again, Gandalf smashing the bridge with him on it. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. And I think that's a good point. You know, you're saying bringing up the horror genre. And that is certainly an aspect of it and tied to the fact that it is a mystery. We don't understand it. But again, because the worst thing that can happen to you is also in some ways the best thing that can happen to you. That does take a lot of the, if you will, despair out of it. So I'm really glad to hear that. There's a dichotomy
1: about the game that I like that gets expressed mechanically as well. You said you might want to take that hit so that you can then Mm counterattack. For those who are listening, the resources that you use to both defend and then attack come from often the same pool. Mm -hmm. So you can sort of decide, is this going to be, am I just going to tank this and be awesome or am I going to, you know, get hurt a lot and then maybe actually have an even bigger counterattack?
2: Right. And that, of course, comes especially to the bitter, where the bitter, Mm -hmm. the the sort of defining point of the bitter school is they get stronger the closer they are to death. So you sort of have these two ends of the spectrum of the Durant is the hardest to kill and the sort of most traditional sort of tanky fighter type character. And that's a great character to play if you're not sure about this whole Phoenix-y thing because they're the ones who are going to die the least. Whereas the Bitter is all about, you know, if you're right on the edge of death, you know, well, you might be about to die, but you're going to have like a ton of cards and improvements and things like that. So it's very much a sort of Hulk go out with a bang sort of thing. So I like yep. the differences in playstyle.
1: The Bitter is the Blaze of Glory personified, mm-hmm. and Stephanie from our gaming group played the Durant, and after like three sessions, she was just like, I'm invincible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: meanwhile, my Bitter got killed by a little girl <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> because Aww. I balanced it on the knife edge a little too tightly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, so speaking of the deaths, I did love, for you for D&D and Pathfinder players, mm-hmm. Shane and I build a lot of, you know, 5e characters, and we love to multi-class mm-hmm. because we like all these different kinds of abilities, and I love that death and advancement basically comes with multi-class built in.
2: Yeah. Your first death, as part of character creation, you say, how did you die? What death was that? And that really sort of defines your core critical abilities. So when we say you're a bitter phoenix, I mean, your first death was bitter. But again, moving forward, depending how you die, you can pick up abilities from other schools. So, multiclassing classing is, is very much in there. I will say, just in the interests of shifting to, to other topics, I don't want to dominate everything with Phoenix. Two of the questions that have come up to me, one is, well, could I just play Phoenix in Eberron? Because I love Eberron. And <laughs> another is, could I play Phoenix with the D20 system? And part of the point to me is both of these things are possible... But I did not originally come into this planning to make a new role-playing system. There's lots of great role-playing systems out there, and I wasn't really thinking about it. The Phoenix system is very much oriented around that concept, that death is how you improve. And that's why I like having the card-based element and things like that in D&D, basically... Death is not in your hands. You're going to fail a saving throw. The opponent rolls a critical hit. You know, a lot of these things are in the hands of chance. And that's fine, because that's the kind of story it is. In Phoenix, where death is very much on the table, having that ability to feel like, but it's a choice I'm making. I'm deciding, will this attack hit me, or am I going to spend all my resources to defend it? I'm deciding, oh, I'm going to pour everything into this final attack, and I don't care if I get hit afterwards. So you easily could take the basic concept and just say, oh, it's I'm going to play D&D, but we level up. You know, We gain three levels each time we die. That would work, but it's not going to feel the same. Meanwhile, looking to Ebron, could we run Phoenix and Ebron? And the point to me is that, again, you could, but part of the point of the setting of Phoenix is it is a world that is in a desperate situation and needs heroes, and the stakes are very high. It is, there's a chant outbreak in this village and you have one hour to stop it or thousands of people will die. And that makes that sense of me throwing my life away to beat this guy is worth it because I'm saving all these people. Whereas if I was just going into a dungeon and it's do I get a magic sword, it's not going to really feel like this is a moment where it's worth it for me to die. So my point to if people wanted to run in an is you definitely could, but you'd want to raise the stakes. So one of the examples I give is say, sure, there's another Zoriad incursion. The morning is spreading. You know, You need something that you're saying this is the existential threat that we need you to try to stop. Because that's what makes Phoenix really feel worth it, as it were, is this sense that your death really means something. So you definitely want to make sure the stakes are high.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, talking about the horror of mm-hmm. that's kind of inherent in Phoenix, when I was the GM, I had a little more information than you guys did as players. And that definitely struck home for me that the existential threat is mm-hmm. the horror. Mm-hmm. I guess there was a little bit of body horror in some of them. And mm-hmm. there's a little bit of that kind of jump scare, you know, we we had tension mounting and, and then oh now it's the oh crap moment, right? Right. But so much of it was we don't understand any of this and we don't know how to go forward and we just have to do something because we don't have enough time to figure it all out. And I, I really like that.
2: Going back to, you know, as a longtime Lovecraft fan, that is the point to me of a lot of what I feel I feel the hardest thing about a Call of Cthulhu adventure is people know they're playing Call of Cthulhu, which means they are expecting weird things and stuff like that. Whereas, of course, Lovecraft's protagonists don't, you know, and that part of the thing is having to deal with, you know, fear of the unknown. And so it is the case that, as you say, with Phoenix, it is a classic, we are fantasy heroes fighting against bad stuff, but there is this big part of it of, can you understand it? Because just stopping the chant outbreak doesn't actually really accomplish that much if you don't know why it happened. So I really enjoy that. And I've certainly seen in dealing with the chance specifically, different groups, you know, some groups will just be like zombie apocalypse and just like kill everything. And other groups will say, oh, my God, these people are still alive. They're infected by this disease. Can we find a way to save them and, you know, go out of their way to, to not just slaughter hordes of chanters? And, you know, either one works. It's all about what kind of story you want to be telling, as it were.
0: Yeah, our, our group didn't even pause to think about that one. It was just <laughs> kill them all. <laughs>
2: That's part of what I find really interesting is, is, you know, most groups say essentially, I get this. This is a zombie thing. You mow down the hordes of zombies. That's what you do. But I've had right. other groups who very specifically were like, no, we need to contain them. We need to understand this. Uh, and as I said, I find it very interesting both seeing what people do. And I like that the system is flexible enough that it can handle both of those.
1: We basically started off as an Eberron podcast. Mm-hmm. So if you don't mind... Oh, <laughs> like to talk I, about I
2: hate talking about Eberron. I mean, you know, <laughs> oh, it's such a chore. But no, I, I can talk about Eberron all day, every day. So yes, let's talk about Eberron.
1: Awesome. So I think a lot of fans want to know, do you play in any Eberron games anymore?
2: I have not recently because my life has been so much about Phoenix for the last three years mm-hmm. that I mean... Up until the beginning of this year, I was running like running two or three Phoenix games a week. And then also going to cons and things like that. Because again, you know, we're making this new game. We had to make sure it really worked. And part of it was also I needed to run long-term campaigns to make sure those really worked. But with that said, I think it was early last year, was the last the last session we had. I have been playing in a 5th edition Eberron game. I started out with a changeling rogue who I liked a lot and who I had different personas for for different skills and such. One of the things I liked is Mm -hmm. like when I was using Intimidate for like Intimidated melee combat, I had this sort of thug character who I would bring out. And, you know, then I had my more diplomatic, suave, normal character and things like that. Uh, So I liked that character a lot, but I wasn't enjoying the rogue as much as I had hoped. I find the rogue is sort Mm -hmm. of a better sniper and I like being in the midst of of combat. I'm more, of, if you will, a fighter by nature. So I switched to a half-orc paladin from the Demon Wastes. So a Silver Flame paladin, but the Gashkala instead of the Church of the Silver Flame. The original. Yeah, exactly. And that was part of what was fun (laughs) about it is one of the other characters in that game, that was actually an Everon game where they jumped like 15 years into the future And one of the other characters in the game was a cleric of the Silver Flame, but it was actually Jayla Darren. And the idea was that, because this was the continuation of a very long-time Eberron campaign, uh, was that she had been ousted as the Keeper of the Silver Flame and uh, had disappeared, you know, in this sort of sacrifice and now was suddenly back. And it was sort of, okay, what does that mean? Why is she back? Is she going to try and regain her position? Uh, So you basically had her... You had someone playing, like, I think a warlock, who was sort of an arcane archery kind of character, but who was a devotee of the Silver Flame and was sort of, like, protecting her. You had a shifter barbarian, oh, and we had a gatekeeper druid who showed up later. But I really liked <laughs> playing this This sort of, yes, technically we are both the same religion, but again, I'm coming at it from a very different perspective. And, you know, it's so cute that you people think that your, your little <laughs> fire up in, in train is, is important sort of thing. So that was actually, was actually a lot of fun.
1: Lutheran, how, how quaint. Yes, exactly. <laughs>
2: and that's something where, frankly, because of that, I spend a lot more time really thinking about the Gashkala uh, and the Demon Wastes. And certainly if Eberron gets unlocked for the Dungeon Masters Guild, which I hope it will, that's a topic I'd love to write more about.
1: That's really exciting. I
2: think one interesting thing is if you go to my website, keithbaker.com, well, it's Keith-Baker, I've written a number of these Dragonmark Q&A posts about this. And one of the recent ones was about faith and religion. And it wasn't actually on that post. Someone posted elsewhere, you know, sort of writing about that, that essentially Eberron doesn't have enough gods. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. it has only only these couple different religions, and that's not really enough for your cleric to really have enough to work with. Yeah, I totally disagree with that. It
0: has
1: the perfect number of gods. (laughs) I had to cut out an entire pantheon in order to make it usable because there were just too many gods that I was throwing at players. Mm -hmm. Which one? Why don't you cut out? The dragon pantheon. Oh, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, they had gotten to in later. Mm-hmm. And so it was like, mm, you're already, you're invested in the Silver Flame and the Sovereign Host. Let's just stop
2: there. And let's face it, it's basically the Sovereign Host, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to have to explain that. But that was the point to me, is to me, Eberron isn't about, let me just give you an infinite number of pantheons. But what it does do is give you a lot of different interpretations of those pantheons. So mm-hmm. essentially, just like here, we were both followers of the silver flame but we were very different and part of the fun of it was exploring those differences in you know in the way things played out and just likewise with the sovereign host you can do all sorts of different things with the sovereign host it's not like you know two characters feel exactly the same so is
0: that hard for you as the creator to play in an eberron game that somebody else is running They make choices and you're just like, oh, but that isn't how I would do it. (laughs) It is really
2: interesting. It's harder with novels. There are a lot of the novels that I read and I'm like, oh, no, no, that's not how that's supposed to work. But playing, I will say one of the earlier games I played was the Mark of Heroes campaign, I think, which the RPGA did. And one of the things that was funny about that is one of the other characters was playing a bard and I was playing a Warforged Artificer. But basically, anytime he made a Bardic knowledge check, the GM would just point to me. And, you know, I would tell them what they <laughs> what they would know with, you know, with that result. It's like, okay, what do you know about the Dakani on a 20? You know, Keith? And so it's sort of like being the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. You know, they just turned me on when they needed Eberron lore. Uh, right. so that was kind of fun. The game I'm playing with the Gash It's actually the GM is someone who ran like an Eberron campaign that I was in for like two or three years. And really, it's kind of fun because I'm usually the GM. 90% of the time throughout my life, I've been the GM. So it's actually kind of fun to get to experience the world as a player and Mm -hmm. get to develop a character. And part of you know, with Eberron, we've got the whole. We don't tell you what caused the morning. We encourage you to sort of add your own details. And so part of what's fun is I don't know exactly what's going to happen, if you see what I'm saying. Like, we start investigating the morning, I don't know what he's decided. And so it's kind of cool that I can play in it, even though I created the world and not know the answer to every mystery.
0: Yeah, I love that about Eberron. I I mean, I think we've talked about that a bunch of times on the show, that The Mm. fact that there's this huge central mystery right smack dab in the middle of the continent is just—it's great because no game is going to be the same, and you can't really worry about canon and all Mm. of those types of things because it's just not there.
2: And flipping back to Phoenix for just a moment, what I will say is in Phoenix, which is also very much about a mystery, we do give you an answer, but we also do (laughs) say— feel free to change this. You know, here's a couple other things it could be. You know, we're working. Canon is this. But we also very much do encourage game masters to add their own twists or to, you know, make it their own. Unlike the morning, you know, we do give you an answer because it is very important. And, you know, if you don't have any ideas, this is the one to work with. Yeah. But again, I'm very much of the opinion that campaign settings should be a source of inspiration as opposed to limitation you know it should give you ideas for stories it shouldn't be something that says that story is impossible you know you should always feel free to to do what you need to do to tell the story you want to tell
0: well speaking of inspiration what uh what's inspiring you right now what are you what are you watching on TV what movies what what's going on for you that's been inspiring you recently
2: well that's an interesting question especially for You know, what would inspire me into role playing, as it were. Certainly, things I've been watching, Um, Mr. Robot, I've been watching recently Mm. and I really enjoy. And that ties into if we just look to Eberron. The point of Eberron is Eberron is a spectrum of noir on one end and pulp on the other. And I love both of those things. And so, Mr. Robot is very much sort of noir, you know, low action and morally shades of grey you know sort of uh, thing that I love that sort of tone and I could totally see I've never done it yet but I've always wanted to run an adventure. Are you familiar with Stephen Brust, the Vlad Taltash novels? Old series, he's he's written 10 million of them by now I think but I really like the first couple but essentially it's a story that rotates around I think a guy in the Thieves Guild running, you know, running uh, hustles and things like that And it's a little bit, you can see it's a little bit sort of fantasy Sopranos because the guy is a minor crime boss who owns a piece of territory and over the course of the games it expands and he deals with rivals and things like that. And I've always sort of wanted to do a sort of Sopranos in Sharn making the players uh, a a little, you know, low time operation in the Boromar clan. And basically one of the guys is the boss, you know, who's, who's technically in what class he is could vary, you know, he's probably a rogue. But then you have, you know, the enforcer, the the hitman, the wizard who provides magical support and actually sort of deal with the ongoing, how do they get caught up with Dask and, you know, sort of this sort of lower, smaller scale, dirty, mean streets of Sharn story that's not about saving the world and it's more just about carving out your piece of Sharn. And so when I look at something like Mr. Robot, where it is, again, these sort of people down at the bottom of things trying to to run their hustles and get by, uh, I could definitely see having some of that that tone in an you know an Eberon rogue heavy sort of game. I've also, on the other hand, completely other hand, been re-watching a lot of the Marvel movies. You know, I loved Civil War. And as a result of that, uh, my wife and I have been re-watching the Captain America movies and the Avengers and things like that. So I also love, you know, the uh, the over-the-top cinematic action. And that's part of Phoenix, of course, is it has that dark horror side, but it also does have the opportunity for these sort of very cinematic action sequences. I am reading Mistborn at the moment. I never got around to it, so I'm finally doing that. And I also highly recommend a book called Deathless by Catherine Valenti. And it's a little more esoteric in its setting it's basically set in stalinist russia but it is weaving in a whole lot of aspects of slavic fairy tales so particularly koshi the deathless and it's basically just this very interesting it's a little like if you know american gods american gods is sort of about what happens Mm -hmm. to mythological figures when they're brought into another country Deathless is essentially what happens to mythological figures when the country that created them changes. How do they evolve? You know, now that you have Russia evolving into this Soviet society, how do its sort of traditional spirits and uh, folklore adapt to that? And I love that kind of exploration of, uh, of folklore and mythology, and so I really enjoyed that. So was called Deathless. Another show I've really enjoyed is The Americans, it's set in the eighties, and it's basically about a family where the two parents are Soviet deep cover agents who have been, you know, undercover for twenty years and have kids who who don't know their parents are spies. And it's sort of Cold War espionage, but very much dealing with this the impact of being a deep cover agent. You know, in many ways, the relationships and psychology are almost as interesting as the espionage part. So I really enjoy mm-hmm. that. Essentially, I just like stories.
1: Lots of Eastern Bloc influences.
2: Yeah, I guess so. But coincidental. But, I mean, of course, in The Americans, it's all set in America. But, right. uh, you know, it's more, I think, that you have the espionage. What I like about The Americans is it has protagonists on both the sides of the KGB and the FBI, and it very much doesn't present either one as good or evil. It basically says these are people working for different countries with different beliefs doing what they believe in. And that to me ties back to Eberron, where again, part of it is saying all the people believe that they are the heroes of their story. And you can decide who you mm-hmm. think is right and who is wrong. But they all feel like, you know, they are doing what they are doing because it's the right thing to do. And that very much with uh, the Americans is what I like is that they they have that level of sort of depth to the characters
0: so we will put links to all of that in the show notes listeners
1: ladies and gentlemen you now have your summer reading and watch list excellent once
0: you finish your 500 pages of phoenix <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: and of course i've been watching game of thrones
0: <laughs> well yeah i've uh, i've lost at bingo multiple times so excellent. thanks i've been doing all the dishes in my house <laughs>
2: That was very fun, as I've been watching it with a group of friends, and I always make bingo cards for when we go to see Marvel movies, you know, Civil War, The Avengers, uh, and a friend of mine said, well, why don't you make these for Game of Thrones? Uh, so I've been posting those on my website, and I'll, I'll continue to do that next year. Yeah, w-
0: the problem is when we have to pause the show to argue over whether or not a, uh, a scene has just qualified as a bingo square. <laughs> we, we would just do that live.
2: You would definitely have people saying, you know, is that magic? Is that magic? Right. Uh, Or is that gratuitous nudity? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, That that nudity was earned. (laughs) I I have to say there was definitely uh, one category where it was the first time Sansa sees Littlefinger and after long, you know, in the season. And I had a square that was Littlefinger acts creepy.
0: Yeah, we argued over that one at length. And
2: I, (laughs) watching that one, I was just like, he did not feel that creepy to me. I felt he was getting slapped around. I'm like, I'm I'm disappointed (laughs) because I was expecting some quality creepiness. And I'm just like, no, he was was not that creepy. But, you know, I appreciate that it facilitates discussion.
1: (laughs) Near marital (laughs) strife. Well, fair enough. (laughs) I've decided my next uh, Eberron game is going to be a family of Karnathi spies growing up in Sharn with their children who feel brellish. Yeah, there you go.
2: A- I I see I would I would do that. I will say that a game that I seriously considered running at one point was actually going to be a Mission Impossible style game where all the characters were changelings. And <laughs> and it was totally going to be each session, you know, who are we this time? What's our mission? You know, and everyone has new uh, identities for every every game. And we didn't end up running it. But I like running concept games. So uh, when I run games at conventions, I always have try and pick an unusual theme that people probably aren't playing at home just to give them an experience that, you know, they probably don't have. So I've had the Carnathy A team you know, where all the characters are mostly undead. I, I <laughs> run uh, sort of a di- strike force decon where, you know, you're like a unit of word bearer to <laughs> uh, And I've run a session in Droam where all the characters are working for different warlords, but they're working for the daughters of Sorkal, but you have a werewolf, a uh, uh, gnoll, a bugbear, barbarian, a goblin, a doppelganger. You know, so again, very different sorts of characters. One of the games I ran at home actually was a a two-shot, I think, but it was a Valinor warband. So it was everybody make Valinor. And we had a very Valinor-centered thing. And so I love that sort of exploring a particular aspect of Eberron. Yet at the same time, I also really loved that three-year campaign where I really got to dig deeply into a character. I will say one thing that came up in my Dragonmark on Faith is one thing i really enjoy as a cleric if i'm playing a cleric type character is actually questioning my faith and i will say that in that campaign uh, my character did actually start out as a dragonborn paladin he started out following the sort of draconic version of the sovereign host and over the course of the campaign he basically lost faith in that and ended up becoming a priest of the prophecy and which was a very interesting sort of thing. Wow. And, uh, and basically saying this is what you know shapes and defines our lives. Uh, and it was sort of a fun way of like justifying things like healing spells and such as, it is not your time to die! <laughs> but as I said, it was a very interesting arc for that character that I really enjoyed.
0: Yeah, I actually had the same thing with the Crisis of Faith mm-hmm. for my character in the Morning Glory campaign. I was a Silver Flame Inquisitor, And just because of the timing of the game, we started with the 5e playtest rules Mm -hmm. and then moved into the published 5e. And I switched character classes and switched races. And so we worked that into the story as I went into a portal at one point and came out at another and I Mm -hmm. was a different person, right? Mm -hmm. And so Ishan worked that in as I thought that, you know, Silver Flame Inquisitor I thought that Sybaris had actually changed me because Mm -hmm. I became a dragon sorcerer. The vestige of Sybaris. Right. And so, you know, I'm, I'm proselytizing that Sybaris is alive and you know, we need to be (laughs) doing stuff about this. Right. And people are looking at me like I'm crazy. And then slowly, you know, kind of came back into the silver flame and ended up more dedicated to the silver flame than ever. So it was uh, it was a fun arc.
2: It's interesting that you mention that because that was also part of my character as well, is it was, in that case, we were just starting 4th edition. And uh-huh. part of it is I started out as a paladin, and I really just, after 6 or 7 levels, I'm like, I really don't like the 4e paladin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so we actually ended up, I shifted over into being a cleric instead, uh, which I was much happier with. And it was similarly part of that transition It's just just as this whole idea that I'm just approaching things in this completely different way and my characters had this, you know, revelation of his purpose and such. It was a very interesting campaign, a lot of different things tied together there. But I also love concepts like, yes, Siviris is still alive and what do we do about it? I will say one of my favorite campaigns that I've run as a game master, three of the players were, one was a changing cleric of the silver flame who basically decided that as a novice he had stumbled into corruption within the church on the part of like his mentor and was so sort of baffled and distressed by this that he basically said I've got to get out into the world and understand corruption like from the ground up so that I can really know what it's about and <laughs> know how to go back to the church and change things and so he's out in the world, you know, trying to sort of get down to the mean streets and see how it works. And then we had a paladin of the blood of Val, who basically, I love this guy that he thought his arc out in great detail of essentially saying, long story short, he was raised by of uh, Val, thinking that Caius had betrayed his family and had his parents killed when he turned on the order of the Emerald Claw well, the, mm-hmm. the Blood of Vol in general. And when I say raised, you know, guided. Not like personally, right, you know, she yeah, was his right. mom or something. But, you know, but basically... <laughs> she's, she's not great with kids. Yeah, but basically that his <laughs> whole purpose was I am trying to gain power and allies so I can go and overthrow Caius for betraying the Blood of all. And his whole concept was... And I'm sure after that happens, I'm going to realize this was a horrible, terrible mistake, and it's going to cause all sorts of trouble. And at some point down the line, I'll realize that Arandis is actually just using me and is, you know needs to be stopped. So his like whole grand epic arc was going to be basically dealing with Arandis and, and fixing that, but that he had this small arc of, I'm not going to figure out that's my problem until I bring down Caius. And then the final character was a warlock who basically uh, was a follower of the Lords of Dust. And oh wow! His, Same party. Yeah, his whole concept was that he had a particular. He was a follower of a particular overlord, and his point is that essentially the overlords are gonna come back. It's just gonna happen. Sorry, it's the end of the world is nigh, and his overlord at least would keep civilization relatively intact as we know it. Even though we'd all be slaves to the horrible demonic overlords, we'd still be us. Uh, As opposed to someone else who will dissolve the world into chaos or drive everybody insane, and it's sort of like he doesn't want this to happen, but it's the best option if it's going to happen.
0: Wait, so was he a follower of Belshulor?
2: I think we didn't uh, end up uh, defining. It makes sense. I would, I would have accepted that. Mm -hmm. And so again, his point was he'd love to delay this a hundred years if we can find a way to. But you know, it's still what he believes is going to (laughs) happen, and his present the best. And it was uh, basically like, like the first game, we just had an hour of them sitting around debating religion and arguing <laughs> with one another. And I loved that they were into the story enough that they could just have that conversation. And I'm just sitting back and watching. Uh, so it was a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, my favorite thing about running Eberron Games was... Hitting those points when the party would be just discussing things very heatedly amongst themselves, mm-hmm. and I didn't need to come nope. out and like have an answer. The important thing was what does your character believe about this, because none of you are necessarily wrong.
2: Right. And and like I say, it was the exact same thing. Of it was just great to hear them all sort of getting into their concepts and and debating them.
0: Yeah, a lot of times our debate was, uh, is Brand evil. I feel like Brand is evil. The Silver Flame must be evil. (laughs) Guys, I'm good, I promise.
2: Uh, It's actually funny you say that because my half-orc paladin, I believe, was also named Brand, if I'm remembering correctly. Oh, really? Yeah.
0: Was his father also a blacksmith?
2: No, his father was a a human paladin of the Silver Flame. And Uh, actually, the concept here was that his father had brought Cloyner back from Flamekeep. Because Tira, the concept was that it was an ancient artifact of the Silver Flame that Tira had actually gotten from the Demon Wastes. That Uh, it was a gashkala weapon that, you know, had been consecrated thousands of years ago. And that my father had brought it back and that's how I was a half-orc, you know, instead of a full-orc. So,
1: gotcha. Wait, I thought the sword was sitting at the... Heart of the Silver Flame, embedded in a coaddle and a and an overlord. Well,
2: this is, of course, the point of this story took place
1: 15 years in the future. Oh, um, right. So. Let this go on record. I am not the only Eberron GM to slip in a little time travel. Yes, yes. <laughs> and part of it was because
2: we would had this epic three-year campaign uh, where things had happened. And so what we sort of did was jump forward so that we could say oh, yeah, such-and-such's previous character is now Regent of Carnath, you know, and things like that. That campaign ended, I think, with Jayla, not a player, making a huge sacrifice and disappearing, you know, joining with the flame. Mm. And then in this 15 years thing, we're like, oh, but she's back, and we don't know why. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and that was sort of the, the sort of let's deal with the aftermath of the things that happened. In one of the, the campaigns that this group ran that I wasn't in, uh, it ended up that Garrow, who is a minor character I created in Shadows of the Last War, who's this minor, mm-hmm. uh, sort of goofy, emerald clove monkey, who's actually a changeling, uh, had ended up becoming King of Carnav, And that they brought him down. You know, he'd like murdered Caius and, you know, done all this stuff and they defeated him. But I was just like, wow, Garrow? Really? That guy? Um, <laughs> and actually, that was part of the backstory of my changeling rogue, was that she was actually a descendant of Garrow, and had his identity sort of that, you know, could put his face on. But it was sort of a point of shame that the previous guy using that identity had basically, you know, brought shame onto it. And so part of the arc of that character was, I'm going to redeem Gero and, you know, make Garrow great again. Um, and as I say I ended up shifting because I decided I'd rather play a paladin and, and boot things in the head than, than play uh, a rogue but I love that as a concept and that was part of the idea of the way I was doing changelings of saying that basically personas you know changelings create these identities that are actually like heirlooms that they would hand down mm. so Gero was this, yeah, I love that this idea. guy you know the Gero identity had been passed down her family for hundreds of years And, you know, hey, he's a vampire. So, you know, or at least he looks like he's a vampire. And so that's how people don't question that he's hundreds of years old.
0: So what do you what do you identify the most with in Eberron? Like as you as you sit down, like, is there an NPC or a country or a dragon marked house that is just Keith Baker all over it?
1: Yeah, is there an author insert? Uh,
2: There's one or two, and I'll come back to that in a moment. But by and large, there really aren't. I really love everything. And this is where it's kind of crazy when we talk about religion, because I can totally put myself in the shoes of a follower of any of the religions. You know, I can argue from the point of the blood of all, even though I can just as eagerly argue from the point of the silver flame, because they both make Mm -hmm. sense to me. You know, I understand why someone would believe that thing. And the same sort of comes to me with the nations. You know, I like them all. You know, they're all doing different things. And it's the same way that I love pulp and I love noir. And so it's sort of like, which am I in the mood for? So I will say, if I had to pick like general favorites, I would say Zalargo is near and dear to my heart just because we make gnomes great again. Uh, and just having gnomes become something that you should actually be terrified of is something that I really enjoyed.
0: That's especially bold in third edition when gnomes were so controversial in the PHB.
2: Yes, and and so basically <laughs> taking something that has generally been a laughing stock or non interested and in putting it in this you know role where it becomes really interesting. I really liked. Also, I personally really like Droam, which is the nation of monsters. Just because, again, I like looking at things in different ways. You know, looking at gnomes and saying, how can gnomes be scary? Looking at monsters and saying, if you were actually building a society and the tools you had to do it were monsters, how could you use their abilities in useful ways? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, part of the point of it, uh, you know, you have Medusa's as a form of cryogenic suspension. You know, someone is hurt and you don't have a healer around. Well... Petrify them, and you know, thaw them out when you uh, when you have access to what you need. But my favorite thing, of course, is the fact that how do you feed a nation of monsters when most of them, you're know, a lot of them, are carnivorous or they generally are not good at agriculture? Is a soilent troll. Is the daughters of Sorakel essentially make a kind of sausage, which is actually ground troll? And the concept is that they have troll farms where they are shaving off, shaving off bits of troll. And the theory, of course, is that they have secret herbs and spices that actually make troll not poisonous. That usually troll meat is very dangerous to eat, but it still comes to that idea of hey, you can you can uh, you know cut a troll's arm off and it grows back. So hey, why don't you eat it?
1: Yeah. A <laughs> uh, foot again. Yeah.
2: And again, I do not think troll is very tasty. But, you know, mm. everything tastes like troll is what we discovered.
0: Well, it cooks up yeah. too fast is the problem. Yeah. It's <laughs> it's always well done.
2: And the acid reflux, uh, it's terrible. So I will say that, that those are things that I particularly enjoy just because they are very different from other things. But like with the Five Nations, what's my favorite Five Nation i really like them all in their own ways it's really you know am i more in the mood for the grim carnathy uh you know spies or am i more in the mood i often have ended up playing Sirens because the Sirens story is so good for adventurers uh you know it's mm-hmm. it's very easy to have the firefly comrades in the war we fought together and we lost and now we're adventurers because frankly we have nothing else Right. is a very easy starting point for why are you adventurers in the first place but I you know again I love all of the nations and to me Ondere is the one I've sort of done the least with but in my mind I can think of all sorts of cool things I could do with Ondere we'll you know we'll go there at some point there's a lot of parts of Everon that haven't I haven't had the time to develop as much as I like the Lazar principalities are a good example but there's really nothing out there that I'm not excited to talk about if I had more time to do it. I always
1: wanted more uh, from Sarlona. There was one book in 3.5, mm-hmm. but I mean, it's so massive. absolutely, right? And it's just untapped and ready for stories. No,
2: and, and you know, a whole nother campaign, uh, you know, if I'm doing alternate campaign settings, as it were, is Sarlona before the Sundering. Uh, you mm. know, the Sarlona nations before the Inspired showed up and wrecked everything. So there's a, certainly a, a number of Eberron in the past scenarios I would love to explore.
0: Yeah, I would love to explore the Giants of Zendric mm-hmm. before. I was just going to say,
1: yeah. yeah.
2: Yep.
0: Beca- or even just exploring them in the current era, but exploring them through their history of their ruins, right? Yep. I think that'd be a really cool yep. immersive campaign.
2: No, absolutely. And I love the idea, too. One of the things I've never actually done, but I love it as a concept is players finding a giant wizard's spell book, and wizards having to try and learn the spells <laughs> from this book? You know, turn the yeah. page. <laughs> <You> know. <laughs> but uh, or just scrolls. You know, a giant scroll. Think about that for a moment. You know.
0: Yeah, and then you've got to get the airship out there to to actually move the thing, yes. and then somebody <laughs> follows your airship, and you know, now they found your dig site. Yeah, it'd be yeah. great. <laughs>
2: Yeah, as I say, I mean, that's the biggest problem to me with Eberron is there's so many stories I would like to play, just not enough hours in the day.
1: You talked about uh, hopefully the DM's guild gets opened up to Eberron content. If that happens, have you thought about just sort of compiling all the information from Dragonmarks and just... You know, making it pretty to look at, throwing it up there and, you know, just offering it for pay what you want?
2: Uh I I think that's quite reasonable, you know, especially with pay what you want, just because it's all out there, so it'd be easy to organize. You know, I certainly mm-hmm. have, in fact, one of the Dragon Marks is here's what I would start writing if it opened to the DM scale tomorrow, and there's no shortage of things I would love to write if it was possible to do so. But yeah, I mean there is a lot of good stuff in the Dragon Marks, and certainly I will say with the last couple and the one I'm working on for for the next time, I'm trying to actually make them a little more initially formatted. That is to Mm -hmm. say, start by saying rather than just literally, here's the question, here's the answer, here's the question, here's the answer, let me start by taking a bunch of these questions and actually writing a general piece that addresses them, but Mm -hmm. in a sense more like an article. And then get to these sort of very specific question and answer points, in part because that first piece would be something that will be easier to put into that kind of format, as opposed to just here is a list of two thousand questions.
0: It's it's almost like you know something <laughs> the rest of us don't.
2: I wish that I did. In all <laughs> honesty, I feel confident that we will get Eberron for fifth edition, uh, just like we did Ravenloft, just because. Mm-hmm the DM's Guild is a good model. You know, I mean, it's a way for Wizards people to be able to write what they want to write and for Wizards to get something out of it. So, good for them. And they've talked about Eberron, you know, on a couple of their surveys. So, I mean, I certainly think it will happen, but I still don't know when. But I would hope within a year. You know, we'll see.
0: So, do you feel like the DM's Guild is good overall for the RPG industry? Do you think that's going to be a a positive effect overall?
2: Well, I think it's the same issue as the OGL for 3.5. On the the good side is anybody can write what they want, and especially with the PDF aspect of it, there's even less bar to entry. Um, So it gives... The ability to have both more content and more specific content. So the point is, with all the things I'd like to write for Eberron, the vast majority of them are things I know wizards would never put into print just because Mm. they're too niche You know, Mm -hmm. I would love to write something about the goblins of Dakan. And I know there's a couple thousand people who would love to have that, but a couple thousand people isn't enough for wizards to be able to make a book on it. They need to sort of get things that are going to get tens of thousands of people. And so I like the DMs Guild because it means I can say there's a big enough audience for me to want to make this then. Uh, I think the drawback is because there is such a low bar to entry, it, the, the danger is that it gets so flooded with stuff that it's hard to sort of find the needles in the haystack.
1: Yeah, we've done a fair number of Dungeon Masters Guild reviews and I think we definitely agree with
2: you. Yeah, and I think that's really where it's going to come down to does the community become strong enough that there are names people trust either as writers or reviewers that, Mm -hmm. you know, there is essentially the Siskel and Ebert who I can say, well, if they say this thing is good you know, and maybe that's you guys, I'm just saying. But I'm saying that's the issue to me is I think the DMs Guild has great potential the question is if that will get buried in, you know, just the tremendous amount of stuff it could generate. Right. With Eberron, I, you know, definitely of the things I want to write, I'm glad that other people will get to, to write what they want to write. But it is, again, that I have no idea if suddenly, you know, Eberron has opened up and there's suddenly 52 different books about the dragon mart houses or something like that. I don't know. We'll see.
0: I don't think you have to worry about your stuff not rising (laughs) to the top. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) Do you hear that, Ishan? Uh, Is that the sound of us interrupting our guest for just a bit of shameless self-promotion? Yep. So let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us.
1: We do love hearing from you.
0: You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sands Carne. That's
1: Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And last
0: but not least, you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com.
1: And Keith, uh, where can listeners get a hold of you?
2: So I am also on Twitter at at HellCowKeith and on the web at Keith, K-E-I-T-H, hyphen Baker.com. So those are the two best ways. And there's a contact button on the website. Folks need to send me an email.
0: And Together Studios as well, right? Yes, yeah, so
2: Together Studios, TWO Together. We are in the middle of updating our website right now. But within the next couple weeks, it'll be updated. And again, that's where you'll get all the latest Phoenix news and where you'll be able to order Phoenix. So I'll certainly be talking about that on com too.
1: So... We're going to be at Gen Con, Uh, and Keith, we know you will be too. Uh, But what are your plans? What's happening there? And are there any important dates or events that fans should be aware of?
2: Certainly. So Together Studios is going to be demoing Phoenix all through the convention. If you go to the event selection page on the Gen Con website and just put in Together, TWO, Together, you bring up all our events. And so there's a constant stream of Phoenix demos, so you can try the game. Uh, get a taste of things. Beyond that, we'll be selling the game in the Kickstarter room, which is being run by uh, Kickstarter and Black Box, along with Cards Against Humanity. And so that's uh, a place where you'll be able to both sort of see a really short demo of it, but also to actually buy the game. And beyond that, I in particular am doing a Q&A, as I say, the same thing I usually do uh, in a hotel lobby, but this time not in a hotel lobby. I believe that is Thursday, but that's just going to be a chance to just talk to me about uh, Eberron, Phoenix, or anything at all. And then we're doing a seminar about Phoenix specifically, sort of all about the game, how the process of creating it, and things like that. And I'm also taking part in the uh, Writers' Symposium. So I've got a couple different panels that I will be participating in for that.
0: So if we search Keith Baker on the Gen Con event listings, we'll find most of those? That is
2: correct. Uh, so Keith Baker, you'll find all of the seminars I'm in. Together, you'll find all the Phoenix demos, because I'm not personally running most of those, because I have to actually you know, eat and sleep.
0: Right, right. So I think I have played at least one of the demo scenarios. Is it the one involving the rooftop?
2: This one? No, no. So you, that is one of our old demo scenarios. This is something I am designing specifically for Gen Con. So the rooftop scenario is sort of just, oh, here's a, a scene, and we don't really finish it out generally, whereas this is something where I'm actually trying to make it two hours. Sort of essentially you do get a beginning, middle, and end of the, the scenario. It's a little hard because we are trying to squeeze it into two hours. We don't want to basically take too much time. and We want you to get yeah. a taste of mm-hmm. it and be able to go. The two-hour session uses pre-generated characters because it kind of has to. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also mm-hmm. doing what we're calling Tragic Backstories, which is a one-hour session that just takes you through the character creation process of Phoenix because it's actually one of my favorite parts of the game. And so that's just something where you'll get to make a Phoenix of your own.
0: Oh, that's really cool. And I would encourage all of our listeners, if you're gonna be a Gen Con, sign up for one of those sessions because it does not take long to fall in love with this game.
2: Thank you very much.
1: Yeah, like I said, I did not think it was gonna be my type of game. Totally was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to drag Ishan to play test it. <laughs> <laughs> but and then had to drag me away. Right, yeah. And then he was like, But was we're like, done. Can you run it for
2: me? And I was like, No, my bidder's level three. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I certainly hope when you get the hands on the game and actually have the full seven mission arc, you know, again, one of the things I'm very happy with is that the missions are very different and do sort of, you have a lot of very different situations that it's, especially as your characters become more important, and, you know, not more important, but more powerful, and they can handle mm-hmm. sort of bigger events. Mm-hmm. And so I'm very happy, you know, part of the point is the arc, sort of thus showcases different types of adventures to then help you when you're creating your own to say i'm looking for something more in that kind of mode
0: yeah is there going to be new content coming out for phoenix as well are you guys gonna do splat books or are you can do additional adventures
2: definitely we're going to do more stuff and part of it is going to be that's really going to depend on how the game is received and what people want I would definitely like to do more adventures. It's probably not going to be the first thing I'm going to do because the seven adventures in the book, you know, should actually keep people busy. You know, it's really about seven to nine sessions worth of, of adventure, depending how long your sessions are. Uh, so sure. I don't think adventures will be the first thing people will do. I certainly do want to explore the world more. In part because, you know, even with a 500-page book, there's only, that's not a whole ton of space to really delve into the setting. And part of why I wanted to create a new setting in the first place is because that way I can explore it as deeply as I want to, which I can't really do with Eberron right now. So certainly I do plan, probably PDF primarily to be doing, you know, sort of additional source books and adventures over time. One of the things is I'm hoping DriveThru Cards is working on adding tarot size cards to their lineup. And if that becomes possible so we could do print-on-demand cards, there's a mm-hmm. lot of things we could do for Phoenix that aren't really viable as print products until we know what the demand is. So, like the ability to say, I just want to have my personal deck of bitter cards, or I want to, you know, again, put out a bunch of monsters. Uh, If we can do print on demand cards of good quality, that would be really easy to do. And I'd love to do is just be able to say, here's a bunch of new monsters, you know, and things like that. If it's something where we have to actually do a physical print run, we need to wait and make sure there's actually an audience before we can, Mm. you know, estimate that. So.
0: Uh, So we'll see. Awesome. Can't wait.
2: Thanks. Again, like I said, part of why I got into this in the first place is I can't write everything I'd like to write for Eberron right now. And so Phoenix is something that I will be able to explore as deeply as time and interest permits.
1: Do you find yourself getting that kind of world building bug, that itch you need to scratch?
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, building worlds is the thing I love, love most, and... You know, part of the biggest frustration with everyone is I can't really delve into it as deeply as I would like to right now. Or I could, but I would starve because there's no way I can, uh, you know, (laughs) actually pay my rent off it. Right. Mm -hmm. So Phoenix inherently, as I said, is a, you know, is less deeply explored in part because, hey, I've only got a couple hundred pages to work with to to tell you about it. Uh, And also part of it is that Phoenix is a more focused story. It's almost to a degree, you know, it's more Dragonlance than Forgotten Realms, which is to say that part of the point Mm -hmm. with Eberron is it is intentionally a world in which you can tell more stories or pulp stories. You can, you know, do political intrigue, or you can do dungeon crawling, or you can do, you know, any story you can think of. There is somewhere in Eberron where that would fit. And Mm -hmm. Phoenix, by default, is very much about the struggle against the dread. There are a lot of places in the world that would be very interesting settings for different types of stories, but that's not what the initial game is about, if you see what I'm saying. And that's certainly something I'd love to explore more in the future, but because we have that tighter focus, it does mean we don't have to explore it in quite as much breadth of material, as it were, uh, as as I would with Eberron, because I'm really focusing on this particular aspect.
1: Is that more focused storyline something that is easier for, say, beginning writers and, and game designers and world builders to sort of get into?
2: Yeah, that's sort of the goal. Is And part of the point with Phoenix is, in my experience, Phoenix is a fairly good game for bringing people without a lot of role-playing experience into. Because you don't have to master a ton of roles. For the most part, what you need to know is what's in your hand. Uh, And there is a sort of inherent story I can get. I am fighting against this terrible thing. You know, that's Mm -hmm. very easy to pick up. Whereas, again, the point is in Eberron, there is no inherent, this is what your story is about. There's dozens of things your story could be about. It could be Changeling Mission Impossible. It could be, uh, you know, Shadows of the Last War. It could be Sarlona something. And so for both Game Master and Player, uh, the tighter focus of Phoenix is intended to just say okay, this is what we're doing. It means that if you don't want to play that kind of story, then it's not the right game right now. But it's something I tell people when they're making characters is it's basically like bear in mind that Phoenix is essentially a war movie and your character is in the army. You know, one of the basic questions is how did you die? And basically why did you come back? You need to have a reason to come back that is you're willing to fight the dread because that's what the story is about. And it can be your own reason. We've had people have everything from, you know, I'm trying to save my family to I actually want to conquer the world myself, but I have to stop the dread before I can do it. And I'm like, that's fine as long as you understand that you're fighting the dread first. So it certainly leaves a lot of room for you still to have a very unique character, but it's still everyone is united by this common, you know, existential threat.
0: I think one thing that works really well for new players is is how cooperative the mechanics work.
2: It is exactly that, is in multiple ways, it is a game where teamwork is very much baked into it. First, because it is, you are up against an existential threat. You know, this is, we're not worrying about am I going to pick your pocket or not? If we don't succeed, people will die. And second... A lot of the mechanics actually do work through connection. The Devoted in particular, which is the cleric-type character, is all about basically acting through other players. Yep. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of different sort of lessons and mechanics you can take if you choose that sort of work with enhancing uh, other people and uh, working together.
0: That was something that wasn't readily apparent at first level Mm -hmm. that we realized as a group by third level for sure was that there were all types of little combos and mechanical nuances that worked really well within the group <laughs> mm-hmm. that you just couldn't set up on your own character. Yeah. Right? I I can't set up my own trigger, but if you're ready to do it then we can go, you know, nova on this enemy or whatever it is, right? And it's really gratifying to play you know, the same way that playing like a trick-taking card game is really fun mm-hmm. when you pull it off in hearts or something like that. There's this really satisfying moment of, oh, we lined it all up. It worked. It's great.
2: And and especially that is the devoted. At rank one, uh, it's not a very powerful ability, but their their ability to add cards to others, as they become more powerful, it becomes much more dramatic. And I like to think the devoted... It's all about particular builds because there are, again, different ways you can make the characters depending what, you know, cards you choose and things like that. But there's a particular devoted build that you're essentially the kingmaker. And it's less about I'm going to do amazing things myself and more I'm all about pushing you guys over the edge. I'm more about being able to give you just what you need to make your thing super awesome. And it's a very interesting, just different kind of way to play a character. Um, And part of what I like about it is, hey, I get to be involved in everybody's turn. (laughs) You know, I'm not just waiting for my turn to come around. I'm waiting yours. But I completely agree some of the best moments I've had have been exactly that sort of everybody feeling like they're coming together to make this amazing thing happen.
0: Yeah, and it's it's incredible as a GM, too, to watch that happen in real time Mm -hmm. as the players slowly piece together. Like, if you do this and I do this and we do okay, this can work, let's do it, let's try it, are we counting right, we can make it, you know?
2: And, and that's exactly, as I was saying, as the missions themselves go on, and the threats get bigger and you're dealing with, with greater things, by the time you get to the sixth mission, there's a pretty epic thing you have to deal with, I'm just saying, and you have to work together like that to have any chance of success. And again, to me, the whole point is, it's not that it's better, than anything else it's just it tells a particular kind of story really well and if you're in the mood for that kind of story uh you're gonna have a lot of fun with that
1: yeah i think pretty early on we discovered the devoted feeding the bitter and creating a damage engine mm-hmm, so that mm-hmm. <laughs> was, was a ton of fun
2: you want to keep the bitter alive but just barely Right, And that's the interesting thing with the Devoted. is The Devoted can go either way. This game doesn't have spells like Cure Light Wounds where it's just a magic damage goes away. The only way to heal injuries for the most part is that the Devoted can take your injuries onto themselves, but then they can pass it to their enemies. And so there is a build of Devoted that's sort of more the paladin build that is very much front-line combat, and it's all about you hit me and I just hand it back to you. Mm-hmm. But I prefer the the Puppet Master backseat devoted myself.
0: I know we're running long on mm-hmm. time. So uh, one more question for you around world building. Yeah, absolutely. Both Eberron and Phoenix have these huge central mysteries mm-hmm. right in the mm-hmm. middle of the setting, right? Yep. Is that difficult for you to try and build all of that logical framework around when you don't know what... The player, or what the GM, what the reader is going to choose as the cause of that mystery.
2: Well, it's a very interesting point uh, because when you take Eberron, a lot of people ask me if I know what caused the morning, and the answer is I don't. I have. <laughs> I, a I short wasn't even going to ask you. Yeah, I have a short <laughs> list of six things that I think these are all very likely things to have. You know, any of these would be a really solid. This could have caused the morning, but I've mm-hmm. never picked one because I've never felt a need. And the point to me is that, to me, the morning is less a mystery that exists because I want it to be solved as much as it is a thing that has shaped the world by being a mystery. And that, you know, what I always tell people is, bear in mind that if the morning, if, you, if the answer is known, it will change everything. Because if it's something that can be harnessed and repeated, then whoever controls that power suddenly is the most powerful force in the the world. If it can't be repeated, if you discover that, no, it was just a weird one-shot or it was because we were using too many fireballs so stop using fireballs, then the war could easily start up again. Because the thing I keep telling people is nobody won the war. Nobody's really happy with how the war ended. They just stopped fighting because they're too scared to keep going until they know what the morning was about. So, you know, very much... To me, part of uh, something I work into Eberron games is a lot of the powers are still getting ready for the idea that sooner or later we will have another war. And, you know, we're going to be ready when that happens. And some people want that more than others. But basically, to me, it's just what you were saying. of It's about what is the impact of the mystery, and also feeling that I could come up with multiple interesting answers based on the kind of story I wanted to tell because that's always what comes back to me is the setting should provide inspiration for ideas it should allow you I want you to look at it and say oh wait but if it's blank and blank then I can do this thing and so it's something that I was inspired actually in some ways some of my earliest role-playing work was for a game called Over the Edge from Atlas Games uh, by Jonathan Tweet and John Nephew. And that is a conspiracy-based modern-day game, but it is a game that also encourages the game master to basically answer a bunch of critical questions about conspiracies and such. And I love it because I love conspiracies, but I loved that I could run this game and then I could still play in someone else's game and not know what they're doing with the conspiracy, so not feel like it's entirely spoiled. But the critical point of that is to feel like there are two equally interesting things that this conspiracy could be doing. So the point with The Morning is I don't want it. If there was just one obvious answer, there's no mystery. The fact that I can tell you here's six answers and any one of those could be a really interesting but very different story is what makes it compelling to me. So likewise with The Dread in Phoenix, it is too central a part of the story for me just to say I'm not going to give you anything to work with at all. So, as I said, there's a lot of things in Phoenix where we basically say, hey, you can make this up yourself, but if you don't want to, here is an answer, Uh, which, you know, is something we don't do with the morning in Eberron. But nonetheless, even there, I do provide, I think we provide three alternate possibilities where, you know, we don't go into them in as much depth, obviously, but that's intended to sort of start you thinking. And the idea is I like it that you would say, okay, I really like this piece, this piece, and this piece, and I'll keep all of those I'm going to twist this one around and add my own thing here. And um, the point to me with settings, I always made my own worlds, you know, when I was growing up. Everyone's like, well, what's your favorite setting? I love Planescape, but I've never actually played it other than Planescape Torment uh, because I always made (laughs) up my own stuff. And the point to me is not everyone has the time to really build an entire world in its full depth to really sort of find all the things. And that's why we have settings, but I still love making something where it's fairly easy for you to feel, but I'm making this my world. You know, I'm changing things here and there and feeling like this is what makes it uniquely mine. So that's certainly something I'm always looking at uh, when I'm building a world.
0: This has been great. I I really appreciate your time, and I love hearing you talk about Eberron. I'm super excited about getting Phoenix in my hands and getting to read it and answer all those questions that I've had as the GM. Well, you
2: know, somewhere down the road, if you want me to come back and answer Phoenix questions, I'll be happy to do that.
0: Maybe at our two-year anniversary. There you go. (laughs) We'll just make it a tradition.
1: Keith, thanks so much for talking with us. We'll see you at Gen Con.
2: Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Take care, guys.
1: So, what do we have planned for next week's episode? So, since next week is the first day of Gen Con, we'll be talking about using and playing pre-gen characters. And in the Character Creation Forge,
0: we'll be building a Spell Duelist. Well, that's it for the first year of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane.
1: And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening.
0: Yeah, I can I can fix that uh, once we get all the audio files lined up. So that's no problem.
1: Um, Shane, you're quiet on this end, but if you can hear you find them, we're good.
0: Yeah, sorry, I'm I'm recording on two mics, so <laughs> yeah. I've
1: got the yeah. It divides the audio. It's, it's how right. It works.
0: All right. Hey, Ishan, is this better audio-wise? Can you hear me better? Keep talking. Talk, talk, talk.
1: Uh, it's it's about the same, but it's fine. Mm. All right. Lovely. Okay.
0: Sorry, I'm still I swear I'm going to get this. <laughs>